Hey guys, welcome back to Table Topics Episode 2, the podcast where we discuss role-playing games and anything related to them. I'm Caleb, and joining me today are Anis. Hello. And Santiago. Hey. And uh, this second episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, mechanics and styles of running your games uh, for more, you know, GM-centric and more just, you know, all overall structure of the game. Yeah, and the structure to tell the story within. We're going to be talking about uh, mechanics predominantly, and also we're going to touch upon uh, uh, what are known as Game Master styles. It's a the, you know, um, standard way of thinking about game mastering. Mm-hmm. And so you want to kick it off? Yeah. Uh, so to begin with, I wanted to talk about uh, types of mechanics. And most of these, like, dichotomies are uh, spectrums. And the first major one is uh, whether a role-playing game is uh, player-centric or uh, GM-centric. Mm-hmm. And um, before you get into that, I mean, there is the whole myth of, well, I call it a myth, but of whole, you know, GM versus player in the whole way of looking at the game. But this isn't talking about that. It's more talking about how the mechanics of the game really focus on either the player or the GM, right? Absolutely. Uh, any situation where a game master is a strictly antagonistic role to the players is generally viewed as a fairly big failing on the part of communication between the players and the GM. And it could be representative of a deeper stemming issue. But that's not what we're talking about today. Um, like you said, we're talking about uh, whether uh, a game, its game set, its game rules, uh, the way it's structured is player-centric or GM-centric, and this is a spectrum. Most games fall somewhere in the middle. There are examples to the far left, uh, player-centric or far right, GM-centric. Um, and what do I mean by player-centric or GM-centric? Right. So um, to give a very clear example, um, a player-centric game is one where uh, the players are fully in control of their characters. They roll their own dice. They make their own characters. And in, in a fully player-centric game, they are full active participants in the narrative of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they matter a lot to the story that's going on. Yes. Um, they matter a lot, generally, but it also means that the, the players themselves can alter the environment of the game um, on equal footing or near equal with the game master. Right. They have so, a high they have a high uh, amount of uh, disruptive uh, potential, I guess is a way to put mm-hmm. it. Not necessarily disruptive, but uh, they have a high amount of control creative control over the environment i mean i don't i don't mean disruptive with a negative connotation i mean disruptive just kind of means that they can impact it in a way that changes things absolutely Mm -hmm. Uh, a very simple example would be uh the players are in a generic fantasy setting and uh they're in a fight inside a warehouse and they need to make a quick escape and a distraction and a player says 
uh, given some game mechanic of the RPG, they say that there is uh, a torch that's easily able to set uh, the building there on, on fire. That's a distraction. That torch wasn't described there beforehand by the GM, but it's something that the player brings into the narrative to give them an advantage. Mm -hmm. um, that is one example of the players having a narrative influence, and it's a very simple one, but these kind of examples go to like extreme ends. The more player-centric an RPG is, um, one example is that uh, players have control of other characters. Uh, the players have control over um, their nemesis. Uh, that kind of thing. Like what what creates the narrative energy? It, it becomes more um, equal between the GM and the players in a player centric uh, RPG. Mm -hmm. And what's what's the other side? Like the more GM centric side. What does that look like? It, there aren't that many RPGs left of this kind. It's kind of like an older style. Dying breed. It's, it's, it is definitely a dying breed. Uh, it is a style at the far right where uh, the game master has complete control of the narrative structure of the game. It doesn't mean that he has complete control of the characters per se, but generally on the, on the very extreme example... Uh, he does all the dice rolls. He knows all the stats. He controls all the player, uh, oh, sorry, all the NPCs, non-player characters, uh, and he generally has control over the entire narrative. And the players are kind of um, on the ride, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They are playing their characters within a parameter, and they say what they want to do. And the game master kind of does everything in the background. I mean, to the uninitiated, that might just sound like how you know any role-playing game works you know mm -hmm. like that is that is uh, how a lot of uh kind of outsiders or first timers view any role-playing game like a dungeons and dragons where you know because it's you know the it's often described as the gm being the god with all the rules and describing everything and they're just you know participants or players in the world you know mm-hmm However, well, that's not quite true. Yeah. With an example like Dungeons & Dragons, we said these are spectrums. Uh, and Dungeons & Dragons might lean closer to GM-centric than the middle. Uh, and most of the classical tabletop RPGs that most people would think of mm -hmm. lean, uh, lean closer to GM-centric than the middle. Uh, they don't go all the way because players still have control of their own characters. They know what their own character stats at and what their own characters will do perhaps a familiar or some small element uh, of the environment. Uh, while the GM might still have control of uh, a lot of things, hence, you know, it leans more towards GM-centric. Uh, if we were looking at the example earlier, instead of the players just saying, there is a torch on the wall, something more classical in the minds of players might be something like asking the GM, is there a torch on the wall? And then, then the GM can decide, is there or not? <laughs> And let's say they say, yes, there is, then they can still take that same action you would in a more player-centric game. And if they say no, then the players have to find some other solution. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not to say that either like side of this spectrum is correct. There are situations where a player-centric game is better, and there's situations where a game mm -hmm. master. Well, that, game. that's the thing. As we're going to be speaking on all these topics, there's mm -hmm. no right answer. It's whatever you and your players, uh, 
and your GM really, you know, resonates with them the most. Uh, if you want to be more, uh, more player centric, get more of the uh, players involved in kind of the decision making of the world, then, uh, you know, that might be more your speed. If, you know, they, they kind of want to take a more of a backseat to the GM, then a more GM centric approach is uh, probably the way to go, right? And this actually is, is bringing me up uh, on a very important topic for these types of mechanics. So these mm-hmm. are spectrums, and we're, we're talking about play, like player-centric RPGs, GM-centric RPGs, and other, other types of mechanics. Uh, we're talking about how the rule set encourages you to play a specific way with an RPG. With that said, you are, there are ways that you can make a, a player-centric RPG more GM centric, and that goes for all the other kind of dichotomies that we're going to talk about in this first section. So, uh, you know, you know, players might be thinking, you know, you're hearing this and you're like, well, I don't know what I want to play. Uh, you know, we said it depends on uh, what you, you and the group you're playing with are comfortable with. Uh, from personal experience, uh, player centric games tend to. Uh, follow looser stories uh and when i say that it's it's harder for like a gm to railroad players into decisions but it's also a bigger creative exercise yeah you you really need the participants to be full in on every session pretty much Yeah, uh, an excellent example there uh, is a game called Blades in the Dark, which lets you, uh, it's a game all about heists and lets you retroactively alter things about the world as a mechanic in the game. Uh, like you, you could be in the middle of something and let's say uh, you run into a difficult situation and then you're, you use a mecha- the mechanic to be like, oh, but what you don't know is say you know an hour before we ran the heist i actually came here and i planted this object (laughs) in this place or you know or things of the sort uh and it's definitely a creative exercise uh you know maybe it's not for every group but it's you know all of these things uh, as as a fan of tabletop rpgs it's definitely worth trying all the different aspects definitely And on the on the other side, uh, let me let me just jump in here. On the other side, in GM centric, uh, when when a, a single person has that much control over a game, mm-hmm. it is very easy to bring people into the game because mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about complicated rules. Uh, a lot of times, they don't even have to worry about character creation. Uh, GM centric RPGs are phenomenal at uh, situations where. Uh, the player, the the players are strangers to each other, like real life, like they don't know each other. Definitely. Or in like uh, conventions where you will join a random table and uh, play with people you've never met in a GM you've never met. Man, um, that can be super fun. And so, I mean, all this is uh, it's basically focusing on the control. How much control do you want to shift to the players, or do you want to delegate most of it towards the GM? Most of the games will be in the middling area, but, you know, sometimes yeah. it's interesting to see what's on the extreme. I mean, almost all of the games will mostly have a, you know, more of a focus on the GM, but there are very heavy player-centric uh, yeah. games out there mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. And, and um, mm-hmm. on the topic of 
player-centric uh, and uh, rules and such, uh, we want to talk about the next kind of uh, dichotomy. Um, mm-hmm. Simulationist rule sets versus narrative rule sets. Simulationist. Um, I personally don't think of those two words when I think of most rule sets, so why don't you just give us a, a brief on what is A small preamble on what, what the <laughs> differences sure. are. So uh, the, the simplest way uh, to think about it is um, how complicated or in-depth the rules speak about a specific subject. So a simulationist rule set is one that has built-in systems to dictate very specific things about the game. An example would be um, how uh, the pressure wave of a grenade uh, deals damage in an enclosed space uh, would be a very simulationist rule set. Alternatively, uh, a rule set which uh, is not specific, vague, allows a lot of input like about situational happenings that uh, there's generally no chart um, and it's more like uh, descriptive rather than numbers uh, is more narrative. Right, more qualitative than quantitative. Yeah. So uh, an example that comes to mind is uh, like having... uh, um, like just jump distance. I know there's a game I played where, uh, you know, we went to jump over like a a a, cre- a crevice in the uh, floor, and you know, yeah. people had to calculate their jump height and you know their speed and all that. And there was mechanics within the game to do this, but you know, in other in another game that I played is I just had an athletics number. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to run. I'm going to go full speed and jump over it. And then I just rolled my athletics. I don't have to, you know, look into all that stuff. You don't have to, you as the player, don't have to figure out all these complicated numbers. Exactly. And just assume your character can figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Those are yeah. the big two kind of rule set dichotomy. And again, it's another spectrum. Mm-hmm. And this is this is more uh, you know obviously all of these are up to preference, but is it, it depends on the players again and the mm-hmm. GM how much they want to put in the work and how much they want to stick to a specific rule set. I know a lot of players that do like rules and like to follow guidelines, and so when they play the game, it's smooth and there's no uh, confusion about how something works. So that's the nice mm-hmm. thing about having a simulationist uh, game style. Mm-hmm. However, it does kind of get clunky sometimes if uh, things are unclear, or well, because or because you could be calculating, you know, your jump distance, and oh, but I'm encumbered, and well, what are you encumbered with? And like, if there's mechanics for all this stuff, then this jumping over a crevice can span a good 20 minutes rather than in a more sim- or a narrative approach where it's I jump over you roll dice that's a good 10 seconds <laughs> uh, I've certainly like uh, narrative uh, uh, games uh, rule sets are more uh, friendly to n- new players as well uh, when you you know you don't have the uh the constraints of having to figure out all these complicated things it's definitely 
smoother for a new player who's maybe not mm. as familiar with uh, role playing. It's definitely too, a load off. Yeah, it's it it takes a load off like that mental stress, and it it's easier than what I imagine uh, a lot of the stereotypes around tabletop mm-hmm. are. I mean, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I I imagine that others view tabletops in the more uh, as more of the simulationist games mm-hmm. uh, versus narrative. Yeah, and I mean everything we're gonna be talking about. I mean, it feels like there's a spectrum yeah. uh, within the spectrum of being uh, one is more geared towards newish players, but that's not fully true as well. I mean, I prefer narrative than simulationist, but it's also easier for newer players, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alternative, not alternatively, but in addition, I kind of like a quick narrative thing. Um, Not all simulationist rule sets um, have to work together in an RPG for you to enjoy them. And we're going to touch on this later in the podcast, but uh, you can just pick one part of an RPG to simulate uh, to be very simulationist, and you can make the rest narrative if that's what your group feels comfortable with. I've played a I played a game where uh, the group really enjoyed micromanaging the finances of their space crew, and mm-hmm. that was a very enjoyable part for everybody playing. But uh, the specific details about how much cover how much cover is needed to stop a armor penetrating bullet was just not that important for the players so uh again it's it's a it's a give and take and most of these things can kind of be like uh switched around to make the the experience better for everybody Mm. i have found that i tend to play games uh that have some level like lean closer to simulationist but then to strip away some of the uh like the extreme uh simulation things uh so something like your example earlier with the grenade and like you know it's in a confined space and how an explosion uh propagates that's too much but perhaps i'd still use like cover or (laughs) things like that uh enough to to make players think personally i like to have enough to make players think mm-hmm. uh, about their like decisions in a tactical way but not not enough to hunker down what they could do <laughs> yeah, just as an aside uh like something like the grenade in a room i mean that's that's personally interesting to me just because you know i'm you know i studied physics so <laughs> just just thinking about that kind of stuff is like oh man i would like to f- find out how that uh how that would how that would work how that affect like the things in the room and i mean i did play uh you know campaigns with physics majors and that was very very like it wasn't even simulationist within the rule book they just put it made it on top of what we were doing and we drew uh you know 10 minute encounter into the whole session yeah. which which isn't like bad but it was uh yeah. it was getting a little tedious yeah <laughs> like all the minutiae of the physics pretty much yeah <laughs> and like right. at the end of it it was neat but <laughs> still <laughs> i would have liked to finish the dungeon <laughs> but hey it was an experience yeah 
And and if I had hadn't experienced that, then I wouldn't know that I didn't really like it very much. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. No, it, not everything is for everybody. That's a yeah. very Anyways, clear let's, point. Let, let's move on to the next uh, topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next topic, the next dichotomy that we're talking about, is a um, one that's more geared towards the actual resources of the players and the game yeah. master. How do you want to represent your story in mm-hmm. a in a physical medium or maybe in a more abstractive space? The dichotomy is referred to, at least we're referring to it as, uh, the theater of the mind uh, and miniatures. Uh, miniatures being overly simplistic way of explaining like the physical medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think miniatures is what a lot of people imagine when they uh, think of uh, t- uh, tabletop RPGs. Yeah, and they, like- they imagine like uh, the checkered board and then little miniatures that you put on yeah. the board. Yeah, little figures of, like, you know, monsters and heroes and what have you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of all, of all the dichotomies we're talking about, I feel like this one has the least uh, gray area. It's the least spectrum-y. Mm-hmm. That's the right word. There's, It's not as smooth when you look at uh, both ends. Uh, you know, m- most of the time you would think you're either playing in what is termed the theater of the mind so you know in your imagination and the player's imagination yeah i know or you have physical objects you know miniatures and you can measure distances and what have you yeah it's, it's either you're using miniatures or you're not but I, i've seen people use it in uh specific ways like they would use miniatures for combat and then outside of combat it would be more theater of the mind i'm going to just describe things but i've also seen people use miniatures for everything like they go to a tavern they're just talking to people they'll use miniatures and it's like yeah. that that gets very cumbersome i find yeah, yeah it, it can be cumbersome it's but that's my personal way, opinion right yeah it's it's also a way to for the players to kind of attach themselves to their character more when mm-hmm. when the miniature has the appearance that you have that you can imagine of your character and you have them placed mm-hmm. in a physical like tactile manner it goes a long way into kind of um establishing that like magic circle of being able to role play Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you definitely start to uh uh, connect with the character more and now that there there's some sort of physical representation of them like even just like drawing them out you know we we have a we have a member of one of our uh our tabletop groups that uh is doing art of our characters and you know that 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 really helps you connect with the character more even just seeing artwork of other people's characters very neat oh absolutely yeah absolutely Um, the other thing to consider about um this dichotomy between theater of the mind and miniatures is that uh compared to the other um in total four that we have here Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't gone to the last one um it is a very resource intensive one and what i mean by that is Miniatures are expensive. Environments are time-consuming to create and potentially expensive. Theater of the mind is free. Yeah. Uh, Even there are ways to, you know, simulate miniatures in less expensive ways, like using bits of paper that you, uh, you know, printed images on or uh, pictures on. I've seen people use whiteboards for 
uh, for environments and things like that. It's, it's also still like time consuming. Yeah, it's also accessibility because I mean, if you're having people uh, across the world, like currently uh, during this virus pandemic uh, situation, yeah. there's there's not very many people uh, doing in person games. I know some families are, but. A lot of people are going online on Discord and stuff like that. So, you know, they're resorting things like uh, Roll20 uh, and other online resources that do yeah. represent miniatures. And that is a more... Uh, it's like there are, there are free alternatives to miniatures that still give you that experience. Mm-hmm. But I, I personally do really like uh, miniatures. I mean, like as someone who's been fascinated by, you know... Warhammer 40k and all that stuff and ah, very very cool like miniatures are so neat and like if you can get them you know to really represent the story and characters then oh it's it's I mean it adds a level of like interest at least to me to the story that's going on however I don't mind the theater of the mind I I almost usually prefer that Mm -hmm. um yeah no I I would agree 100% with what you said uh, one thing when it comes to, like, when you have a rule book in front of you of a specific RPG, um, depending on what the RPG is, it might tell you that you need miniatures. Um, one example of an RPG that is almost impossible to play in the theater of the mind simply because it's a very uh, tactics, wargamey kind of RPG is uh, Lancer. Uh, it, it is predicated on having a battle map with uh, terrain, and it is very it is it is more gamey than than uh, more story based kind of absolutely yeah and and that's the thing some of these uh, things that we've been talking about uh, like these dichotomies kind of connect with one another like ha- needing miniatures is more related to a more simulationist. Uh, style of game right mm-hmm. like if you're going to be using miniatures then it usually is more simulationist but obviously there's exceptions and mm-hmm. but th- there there are connections there definitely yeah yeah uh which i guess brings us to the last of the dichotomies uh we want to say crunchiness versus fluffiness crunchy versus of- fluffy <laughs> and that's not talking about you cereal yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where it's at, man. Like, anyway, uh, well, this one's a very fairly well-known one, so I'll let uh, you guys kind of cover it real quick. Ennis, why don't you why don't you tell us what that's about? <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, when we talk about crunchiness versus fluffiness, it, we're mostly talking about uh, the ease to represent the rule set in the game. So, we're talking about if you wanna. Uh, to bring back one of our old, uh, older examples, if you want to jump over uh, this gap, let's say there's a dice roll involved. How long does it take you to figure out this dice roll? How different uh, and how different is this dice roll from your other dice rolls? If you catch my meaning, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not explaining it well enough. <laughs> It's, it's um, fine. I mean, it, it is very. Uh, it's related to the simulationist versus narrative. Mm-hmm. In the whole crunchiness versus fluffiness, it's the how much how much detail is, and how many numbers are involved and stats are involved in 
doing various things. I mean, yeah. you're talking about styles of mechanics, right? So, I mean, like, there might be a game that has more, a lot more, you know, rolling for, you know, maybe yeah. things that you find, uh, uh, like, everyday stuff, you know? There's, uh, a, there's a very good example of that, actually. Um, uh, there's a role-playing game called Hackmaster. And uh, it has rule sets for having personal hygiene. Yeah. I, I, uh, in my mind, I was just thinking of, like, uh, resource management. Like, yeah. like, I'm just thinking, all right, we're going on a week-long journey. We have a week's worth of food. We'll be fine. That's the more fluffy approach, right? And then the yeah. crunchy approach is... All right, who's eating what? How much are you eating? Are you guys eating? And always checking in on that. It's like, okay, yeah, I eat this much of this. And then you get that portion. You write that down and then all this kind of stuff. Then you have to worry about things like, oh, well, you didn't eat enough. You're going to be a bit fatigued or whatever. Uh, And you might confuse this. Like You might like ask yourself, it's like, well, how is this any different? from simulationist versus narrative well there is you know we're just saying there is there's linked to some extent and simulationist games tend to be more crunchy and narrative games tend to be more fluffy it doesn't have to be that way and you could still have a narrative game that makes you crunch numbers Mm -hmm. you know it's we're talking now less about what you have to do to move your characters versus what you have to do to understand what is happening yeah like not as much about what your characters are capable of doing versus what you the player have to do to move your characters yeah generally crunchy systems um are referred to as crunchy and fluffy systems are referred to as fluffy because of how of the ease on the players Mm -hmm. For with regards to those rule systems, yeah. uh, crunchy systems are crunchy. They are loud. They are kind of like the, some people refer to them as intrusive. I don't necessarily see them that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they they they're they're uh, an easy way to put it is they're a lot to chew through. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I guess it comes from the whole let's crunch the numbers type thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, they did the math. They did the monster math kind of thing. Rather than, uh, we'll just fluff through this section. Yeah, yeah. you guys kill the goblin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. let's. I think we should move on to our next topic here. Yeah. So, so that was kind of like a a, a preamble to uh, what the types of mechanics that kind of are generally spoken of about in RPGs. Uh, we're being very vague in general with these types of mechanics, simply because. RPGs are as varied as, you know, a dozen rainbows. There's so many different kinds. They fit in all kinds of different places. And if we were to talk about, you know, oh, hey, uh, dice. Dice is a common mechanic. It's like, well, it's common, but, like, not all role-playing games have dice. Speaking of dice, that actually segues well right into our next section, uh, where we talk about role-playing games and the management of chance. So... Chance is a, you know, something that happens within our world. You know, someone like LeBron James shooting three-pointers isn't going to make 100% of the shots, right? Yeah. And so, even though he's amazing at sports, specifically basketball, he's not going to make every single shot. So, like, something will happen. Like, 
And so we, you, you need, and when you gamify things, it's harder to introduce uh, random chance. Yeah. And so there's a variety in in life that you you know as as these games try to to some degree simulate you know people and living, you want to somehow introduce the same variety that you would in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so these these mechanics kind of help uh, the players and the GM uh, manage and represent that uh, chance. Uh, a game without any kind of way to simulate or explain why something does or doesn't work mm-hmm. starts getting into the territory of a, a game where um, the the boundaries of it, the, the limitations are not clear. Mm-hmm. And it starts becoming less a game, a role-playing game, and more a uh, very elaborate, collaborative, improvisational like mm-hmm. game. Which isn't what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about role-playing games. They have structure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah, like say, say, uh, say your character's an archer or something, right? And you want to, you know, shoot something far away. Mm-hmm. Your character is an amazing archer, but you can't just be like, oh, I'm an amazing archer. I shoot the arrow at the thing. Well, no. I mean, like, there's random chance in the world. What if, you know, a gust of wind happens or anything else? That's why you roll dice and, oh, you rolled a one. And then there's some reason within the world why you missed, right? Yeah. Mm. Dice are the common, like, an easy way to represent chance yeah. like that. A common, uh, common, yeah. Yeah, they're... Uh, something actually like as close to random as you can get mm-hmm. uh to represent like you know whatever it is and there's many ways that dice can be used but dice aren't the only things that uh are used to represent chance mm-hmm. uh a very famous uh game called dread uh relies upon a jenga tower <laughs> yeah and I feel whenever like 90% of games, though, out there, yeah. or maybe yeah. even more, would use, are, are using dice to represent chance. The majority do, do use dice, but yeah. it's not always uh, uh, dice. I just want to... Yeah. Uh, there was, there's actually a, a role-playing game. I can't remember the name of it right now. I'll have to get back to you guys later about that. But uh, it, it was a physical game. You could not play it online. It mm-hmm. came in a box... And the main chance mechanic was uh, basically the Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, dice are the most common, but it's not the only way. And yeah. And dice um, can be used like one of many ways. Sometimes, uh, as uh, people think is common, is you're trying to get a certain total on on the dice. Yeah. Uh, so, like, hey, you need to get more than a fifteen. Yeah. On, so like, usually they're combined combined with like uh, static values that the player characters have. Like, oh, I want to lift this uh, big boulder out of the way of our path. I have a strength of fifteen, which gives me, you know an advantage on this or gives me uh, a lower threshold on my dice. So say I'm rolling a D20 and, you know, my character's... Yeah, a 20-sided dice. And my character's pretty strong. So I don't have to get that high a number on my roll to be able to succeed in lifting 
the uh, boulder, but say, you know, my little halfling uh, partner here wants to try, well, he's going to have to roll a lot higher because his character uh, doesn't have as much strength as I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also alternatives where it's like the number of dice you roll and like let's say if you're rolling six-sided dice like every six is a success you need to get garner a certain number and so the better you are at something the more dice you roll it's yeah. another way to represent it another way to represent it is uh, uh, having like uh, like re-rolls or things like that like the more skilled you are in a topic the more the more you can re-roll your, uh, your dice until you get a a favorable result and there's all sorts of ways to use dice to represent uh these elements of chance yeah. one one curious way is uh, the fantasy flight uh, star wars rpg series mm-hmm. uh they have dice and technically you can use regular dice but they have their own proprietary proprietary dice mm-hmm. that don't have numbers on them it's all symbols mm-hmm. uh all the numbers in the game are predetermined and you just roll dice, and they're known as narrative dice, and they determine the narrative situation of, like, the roll, like, the roll result. So it could be bad, it could be good, dice cancel each other out, yeah. um, stuff like that. Um, or something more, you can also have stuff that's, like, with different faces, more Yahtzee-like, and you need, like, certain combinations to just perform certain You can even use a deck of cards, you know? Like, yeah. oh, how hard is this? Well, then, oh, it's, it's pretty low chance that you're going to succeed on this. All right, then you have to draw an ace out of this deck or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, there's just so many different ways to represent. Dice is definitely the easiest. Um, D20, common. very common, uh, you know, because of things like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. D10 is, I would say, the second most common, uh, or maybe D6 and D10 are the second most common, simply because percentile systems are uh, pretty yeah. common. Uh you roll two d10s and figure out the percent that you got. Yeah. So uh, um, to segue uh, mm-hmm. from mechanics and what they represent uh, and the uh, management of chance, there are two kind of common rules that we find in role-playing games. Uh, Overarching in- rules. Yeah. Uh, written in the games nine times out of ten, but generally it's accepted that they're pretty much in every game, depending on the group you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two rules are referred to as uh, the rule of cool and the rule of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the rule of cool, uh, to just go over it really quickly, is um, basically, uh, is the thing that you're doing uh, cool, interesting, creative, etc.? Uh, if it is, uh, generally it has a higher chance of succeeding, because that makes a more interesting scenario, more an interesting narrative. And that's not, this rule of cool isn't, like, it's not around every game. It's not around every game master. It's a thing chosen by the group that you're playing with. But it's a pretty common uh, theme amongst uh, role-playing games. Definitely. If, if a character is doing something really creative and outside the box and very neat, it's like, you know what, although this might be a little more challenging you know, otherwise, if you're to describe the final thing that you wanted to achieve with it, the okay. fact that you're going through all this, this is awesome. Everybody wants this to succeed. So, you know what? It, it has a more, it's a higher precedence to succeed. Yeah. Um, the other rule, mm-hmm. um, 
That's that's actually much more common to be found in rule books, and it is just a good rule for most game groups to have. Is the rule of fun? We're playing a role playing game. We're playing a game. If there is something about the game, the game system, the the way it's played, that the group or someone doesn't find fun, talk about it. If you don't have fun with it, change it. Yeah, the the, the whole point is to have an enjoyable uh, group experience, right? And if there's some mechanics getting in the way of you enjoying the game or one of the players enjoying the game, then... Discussing it and maybe either uh, uh, altering it, how it works, or just removing that part of the game um, might just might just uh, lead to a better experience for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, you never have to worry about like altering a book. It's not like there is uh, police going through each session and being like, "Ah, you've altered this rule. How dare you!" Uh, I don't think so, people are worried about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, ultimately, the only pers- people that it's ever going to matter to are the people playing the game. And as long mm. as, you know, you guys are having fun, that's the ultimate goal. Like, it's it's a game before anything else. It's not like, you know, it doesn't matter what the rules are as long as yeah, you have fun. Yeah, these are rules, not laws, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Can, it's like as it. long as you have fun, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you have to say that out loud yeah. to get it to to sink in. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times people will read a rule book and they'll read something that just, it doesn't sound fun. And difficult or hard to get around is different than not fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a difficult game doesn't mean it's not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so- I, I've played in a in a group where I, I remember trying to play Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, and I had a character already thought up. Fligflog Toothbottom, a dwarvish paladin. However, I didn't roll well enough at, on my starting values, so I couldn't play the character that I'd come up with, his whole backstory, all this stuff, because uh, the specific GM was very a stickler for the rules, even though everybody else really wasn't was, was fine with, you know what I wanted to do. I didn't roll high enough on my starting values, so I, I couldn't play that character. And so that's a situation where I would have liked to invoke the rule of fun. Be like, I, you know, I, I might not have the specific values, yeah. starting values to become a paladin, but I mean, like, you know, everybody wants to interact and play with this character that I've created. I yeah. feel like we should just, this be okay. The amount of times uh, as a GM that I have fudged dice because I just wanted something to happen <laughs> is 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 it's too much. It's it's an embarrassing amount, and usually it's like in favor of the players, but sometimes it's not. But it's like there's something. This will be a much more interesting story or, or experience if X Y if you know this dice roll was higher or lower and sometimes i'll just like i'll roll because of some a small sense of duty be like i should roll and then i'll look at the results and i'm like no this will not be this isn't what we want as a group and i'll just alter it well the thing is like you get into situations right and you want to do something and then you try to do the thing and then someone will chime in oh that's not how it says you're supposed to do it in the rule book (laughs) <laughs> and that's a that's a great great time to to for everyone to you know 
look at that and be like, all right, this isn't how it works in the rule book, but do we like this way better? And if so, you know, talk about maybe, oh, can we shift it to this way that I thought it worked or that we mm-hmm. think makes more sense? And then, yeah, just switch it to that. That's the thing. Tailor it to your group and your experience, you know? And sometimes, depending on the game, so a lot of RPGs have very specific narrative settings and um, people have very specific thoughts about what those narratives (coughs) have, down to like a name, like the correct name of a person or the correct uh, location of a place or the distance of it. And sometimes it might just be easier and more fun to just add a little a little pinch of homebrew into a very common setting to make it your own and also to not have to worry about uh, the rest of like accuracy. It's it's fun. It's it's more fun just to go with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. It's I feel like the these two rules like most players, even if they don't like formalize them into these names or you know think of them too much, it's what do, you know like what drives players more than anything else. It's what yeah. drives it, 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 it's what else. keeps the uh, train on the tracks, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's the reason to play these games because uh, I mean like otherwise you might as well just get a computer to play the game for you and then yeah you want to be you want to be having fun and you want to do cool yeah. things in the game yeah. right yeah yeah fact um, fact and now uh, now we're gonna segue into yeah. the final section yeah. we've talked a bunch about time. rules so we've talked a bunch about rules. And uh, last uh, last podcast, we talked a lot about uh, the games and the players, uh, yeah. and we didn't really have a chance to chime in on Game Masters. So to quickly cover an important topic about Game Masters and being a Game Master, um, we're going to talk about the Game Master or GM styles. Different ways of presenting uh, you know, the game to your players. Mm-hmm. Uh, in with this podcast, we're going to include a link to a website. Uh, it's yeah, you'll find that uh, link in the description below. Yeah, uh, that will kind of go into it. Uh, we're going to try to cover it uh, more in a discussion way because this is uh, that's what this yeah. is about. Yeah. So uh, to begin, there are four primary uh, GM styles. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some discussion in the community about you know. Uh, more than four or such but these are like the main four like most like 99 percent of gms will fall into one or more of these styles whether they know it or not (laughs) yeah so um the first one is uh the uplifting style so uh what is uplifting uplifting is a GM style focused on giving the opportunity for the players to be big damn heroes, to be the strongest, to be the center of the story, to yeah. um, Th- be this the world, makers. The world you're yeah. in cares about you as player characters. Yeah. And uh, the entire style revolves around... Um, giving them opportunities to demonstrate their strength, giving them opportunities to gain more power, 
Um, it's all about uh, at at its very core about making the players feel good and feel powerful in their situation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. definitely, it puts the spot, spotlight on them as the center of attention within this world, definitely. Yeah. And so, a- as a GMing style, you're also, you know, the GM typically is the is the navigator for the story for the group. And so, in, a, in an uplifting story, the focus of the stories is uh, almost is as close to exclusively on the characters and the players. And, you know, like, you know, the characters... Uh, inherent personalities and you know perhaps their personal antagonists uh rivals or whatever uh the players come up with are typically the the focus of the story rather than any outside elements Mm -hmm. yeah that's uplifting (laughs) the next style and this style is uh what many people refer to as one of the original game mastering styles. Um, this, I think, this style is what kind of mm, gave the kind of uh, impression of game master versus player. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and and that's because of a, lo- a lot of like the mentality of where it goes from. Uh, some people refer to this GM style that I'm about to talk about as Gygaxian, in reference to Gary Gygax. Um, uh, founder of uh, Dungeons and Dragons um, mm-hmm. the the style is referred to as obstructionist mm-hmm. so based on the name you'd think oh this is a game master who is antagonistic towards his players he wants to kill them uh, it's all bad bad stuff no that's generally the hallmarks of a game master who uh, doesn't understand uh, the the positives or the intent of game mastering a good game master isn't out to kill his players, per se. Yeah. He's out to create fun and to give an environment to do that. So an obstructionist game, uh, game master style focuses on obstacles, as the name kind of implies. So instead of focusing on giving the players more power and giving them opportunities to show it, the obstructionist focuses on what is the next thing the players need to overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is the, is the next, next choice? Yeah, what's what's the next thing that's going to be com- uh, getting in their way of completing their objective? Yeah. And you know how are they going to get by it is up to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the next challenge? What is the next villain? What is the next problem? What mm-hmm. is the next consequence of the yeah. choices that they've made? It's yeah. all about what's next. It's yeah. a very straightforward approach. And it works. It, it's it's one of the oldest styles, and it is it's still around because of how effective it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's easy to get players to focus on a a single problem at a time, and then you know for them to keep focusing once they solve that problem, there has to be a next problem. Yeah, you're just putting uh, you're just putting another door in front of them to uh, yeah. you know, get through. Mm-hmm. Obstructionist game masters love dungeons. And when I say dungeons, I don't strictly just mean underground, like, labyrinths. Dungeon just means a series of problems in a very structured manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obstructionists love them. It's, it's, it's problem solving. It's straightforward. It's, it's all about what's next. Yeah. There are some types of obstructionists that are 
that don't seem that way. Uh, I feel like the game Vampire the Masquerade is an excellent example of that. With like all the uh, social obstacles you run into. And so like at first in a typical game of Vampire the Masquerade, you want you might not think of it as a dungeon, but it's it it's essentially that, except in a more so presented to be more about character personalities in a, a society rather than like physically overcoming obstacles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, like some games uh do uh, kind of incentivize or focus on more uh, either obstructive styles or different mm-hmm. different styles. It, it might kind of fit different GMs, you know, better, yeah. or yeah. force them to be more obstructive when they're you know more uplifting. Usually, yeah, yeah. and that is obstructionist. Mm-hmm. One of the yeah. oldest styles, very effective. Um, the next style is uh, the narrative game master style. Uh, we've been saying narrative a lot in this podcast, um, and they kind of mean different things in different contexts. Mm-hmm. In the game master styles context, a, na- a, uh, a game master that does a narrative style mm-hmm. is one that uh, focuses on the story at large. There is a story that the game master has in mind, the world has events, and the players are pieces in that story mm-hmm. yeah so kind of like the big style yeah yeah so it differs from uh an uplifting style where the uplifting style the the, the stories focus around the uh uh characters and uh like the player characters and you know uh their choices like dislikes, and... their their personalities mm-hmm. and what have you uh, it differs from obstructive style, which where the obstructive style, the story revolves around these obstacles that you have to solve. And narrative style, the story, in, in a weird sense, is going to occur regardless. Yeah, the bus is driving itself pretty much. Yeah. The only difference that the players make is the, the, the flavor of like exactly how to get there. Maybe the music that's playing in the bus as the bus gets there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, some people see this as like uh, a more railroady style, and that's that's not a bad thing, you know. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes because, it's a very neat uh, yeah. story that the GM wants to tell, and you know the details of which are impacted yeah. by the player characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, narrative style is most often seen. Um, with uh strangers like when you're playing a game with people you've never played with before Mm -hmm. or you're playing in the game within the game uh, at a convention Mm -hmm. uh narrative style means that you don't have to worry about you know not necessarily role playing your character perfectly or what the group is going to do next and instead you can focus on developing kind of like a rapport or a connection with the other players which is what's lacking when you're playing with strangers Mm -hmm. Yeah, like these usually have the story already laid out, so you don't need to worry about, uh, like, you know, oh, this session, uh, they chose to do this crazy thing that sends them way off the main path. Uh, I need to rewrite a whole bunch of stuff. Usually that won't happen in a narrative uh, GM style. Yeah, Yeah. so that, that is narrative. 
it, it's uh, most common with strangers or in situations where um, the, the emphasis needs to be more on the players being able to create a dynamic with each other rather than creating a dynamic in the game with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last style... It's kind of an all-encompassing one, term, I guess. Yeah, the miscellaneous catch-all uh, style is uh, the experimentalist or the experimental game style. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does experimental game style mean? Uh, generally, the game master likes to bring novelty to the game. Uh, whether that's through mechanics, through enemies, through story structure, it's all about what is, what could be or what is interesting to try out. Yeah, uh, a game that is primarily theater of the mind might one day they, the players enter a, a dungeon and there's a puzzle, and instead of you know a word puzzle or rolling off to to solve it. There's a literal physical puzzle that the game master has brought, and the yeah. players have solved it. Like, I just thought of something. Like, like you could have like this is kind of neat idea, but you know, a- any aspiring GMs, uh, you know, you can uh, you can take this uh, for free. Um, you can have you know a, a normal campaign go along, and then you can come up with like a story that would bring you to like a uh, escape room or something. And then you could go in character to the escape room. That would be a more experimentalist style to yeah, run that, that, you know? That would be a very experimental GM style session mm-hmm. where you take your players to this escape room and it's like, oh, if you want your characters to escape, you better escape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and it doesn't even have to be that in-depth or that complicated. No, it's I just an interesting of, uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm agreeing. I'm just... I'm I'm giving other examples of the experimental uh, style. One example is most of the time when you're playing on an RPG session, mm-hmm. um, it's it's kind of a given that the players and the GM have all the time in the world to discuss things, mm-hmm. uh, and time kind of grinds to a halt. Mm-hmm. Uh, in combat, technically every action, every turn is like six seconds, so time is very much ground to a halt there. Um, one experimentalist uh, GM might implement a timer that denotes actual time that has passed. Mm-hmm. And so the players have to be quick. They have to talk it out. There's no waiting. Yeah. So if they don't do something, then nothing happens and they're frozen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we talked about uh, earlier in the podcast, we talked about Dread, the uh, yeah. Jenga Tower game. That's definitely experimentalist. Like introducing the Jenga Tower is <laughs> very experimentalist. So yeah, th- this one's pretty open to your creativity. The rest of the game for Dread is also experimentalist because <clears> the <throat> character sheet has no stats. True. It's just uh, basically some prompts about the personality of your character. And yeah, whenever your character is going to do something, you pull a piece of the Jenga. And if a player pulls a piece, uh, makes the tower fall, their character is dead. And uh, <laughs> If the GM makes a piece of the tower fall, then uh, whatever uh, stressful situation uh, the players are in is resolved. Yeah. Uh, 
and Dread focuses mostly on like it being basically uh, short uh, stories uh, that are uh, played like uh, berated horror movies. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have That's a it. full we'll have yeah. a full uh, probably uh, table topics uh, episode on Dread. I'm oh, absolutely, absolutely. But, um, when we're talking about games that encourage experimental game styles, like that's an excellent example. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So experimental, it's all almost all about novelty. Mm-hmm. It's it's about introducing things that are interesting. Uh, maybe it's a, a monster that's not in any rule book, but it has a neat mechanic, or maybe it's a setting that is just out of this world and just interesting by the way that it works mm-hmm. um, I would I would argue that in Dungeons and Dragons the city of mirrors prior to being formally written up would mm-hmm. definitely have been an experimentalist GM's take on like the astral plane mm-hmm. um, it's just it's just this wild idea and mm-hmm. and that kind of translates into interesting situations. Yeah. And, like, we're talking about these styles, and they're definitely distinct things, but you can definitely mix and match uh, parts of these styles. Yeah. I find myself, personally, when I GM, I'm often GMing in, like, some mix of narrative and obstructive. I would, I, you know, I like I would like to be a clever, obstructive GM, but <laughs> uh, I, I find usually it's either a little too simple, or I can't figure it out as a gm i'm just not clever enough yeah and so i just have a narrative backbone for a jamming style like when i gm and that way i can like push in obstructionist pieces in uh mm-hmm. as well as i know how yeah, and you can mix and match obviously yeah. but it's uh you know it, it depends on your uh the game and your players sometimes yeah. if you're going to be swapping from uplifting yeah. to obstructive a lot it might get a little tiring or yeah. you know confusing yeah. for the players so yeah. you know but it, it might be a nice change of pace as well yeah <laughs> it, it might even be a uh, if you're usually obstructive and then you know maybe one session you start trying to implement more uplifting style it might yeah. take them, you know, a little bit off guard, and then you can hit them back with the obstructive uh, style <laughs> stuff. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I guess the, those are all the different types, right? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. the one thing is, um, these styles are kind of established in, mm-hmm. in the community, more or less. There are multiple resources. There are TED Talks. There are uh, panels on these styles. And like what's what's about them, uh, the pros and cons, that kind of thing. Um, if you want to learn more about them, there are resources all over the internet about mm-hmm. these styles. Least of all, uh, us here talking about them. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 here to open the doorway for yeah. you guys to explore, or yeah. you know maybe provide a fresh take on something you already know. Yeah. Anyways, I think that about does it. We're uh, almost at time, so I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, great discussion. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll hear you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Live long and prosper. Bye. Bye. <laughs>